this Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent is a wonderful time of both forthcoming expectations and reflections. And I think one of the ways that kind of best epitomizes this notion of both reflecting backwards and looking forward is the tradition of lighting Advent candles. And so we're going to do that today, right now. So I'm going to toss it over to the Munches, who are going to lead us through the lighting of our first Advent candle. So Munches, take it away. The first candle of Advent represents peace. One of the many names given to Jesus in the Bible is Prince of Peace. In today's world, we often confuse peace with weakness. This is not the case. The peace of Christ is a peace of our darkest fears. Jesus is the Prince of Peace because he offers the opposite of fear, hope. We light this candle of peace so that it is though so that its light may remain may remind us that Jesus burns away our fear and is our eternal light in the darkness. Thank you for that munches. You know, that that peace that they talked about is really rooted in this idea of hope. And Christmas time is really a time of hope and a time when we reflect back and remember our Lord coming to earth in the form of a tiny human child. It's, it's a moment that we reflect back on and that we look forward to anticipating God's grace. But above all, this Christmas time, Advent, is a time of redemption. So this year, we thought it would be fun to spend our Advent time together examining what might be the greatest single literary tale of redemption, Ebenezer Scrooge. And this series is based off, in part, a book by Matt Raleigh, and the book is entitled The Redemption of Scrooge, which is, I just took that as the name of this series. Now, most people know the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, right? The, the miserly man who one Christmas Eve gets visited by some spirits and comes out of it a changed person. Now, in this series, we're going to be examining how each ghostly visitor tried to impart some specific lesson or tried to send Scrooge one step further down his path toward redemption. But before we kind of jump into talking about that, I think we need to get some kind of idea for the person Scrooge was, for the person Scrooge started out as. So to do that, I'm just going to read a few paragraphs from the beginning of Dickens' A Christmas Carol to just give us an idea of kind of who we're dealing with here. So I will put on my reading voice. Let's go. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge. A squeezing, retching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. Secret and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red and thin blue lips, and spoke out shrewdly in his gnarling voice. A frost rhyme was on his head, and his eyebrows were wry, and on his eyebrows, and his wry chin. 
he carried on him a low temperature always. He iced, excuse me, he iced his office in the dog days and didn't thaw it out one degree at Christmas. External heat and cold had no influence on Scrooge. No warmth could warm, no wintry weather chilled him. No wind that blew was bitterer than he. No snow falling was more intent upon its purpose. No pelting rain was less open to entreaty. Foul weather didn't know where to have him. The heaviest rain and snow and hail and sleet could boast of the advantage over him, only in one respect, that they often came down handsomely, and Scrooge never did. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say with gladsome tidings, My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what it was o'clock. No man or woman ever once in all his life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. Even the blind men's dog, dogs appeared to know him. And when they saw him coming, they would tug their owners into the doorways and up courts, and then would wag their tails as though to say, No eye at all is better than an evil eye, Dark Master. All right, so Scrooge's personality is pretty extreme. Even so that wherever he went, cold and misery followed him. It almost sounds like a Dickensian Dementor, you know, sucking all happiness and joy and life out of everyone around him. So this is the, the base we're working from here. Someone that was too icy for winter, and someone that even the blind beggar's dogs thought was worse off than their humans. So that's, we got a long way to go, a lot of work to do. And this work starts as the first spectral visitor comes to Scrooge. This first visitor is the ghost of his long-dead partner, Jacob Marley. Now Marley tries to warn Scrooge that if he doesn't turn from his ways, that he has an eternity of physical and emotional torture ahead of him. And Marley should know best of all, because in life Marley seems to have been more Scrooge-like than even Scrooge himself. So he knows exactly where Scrooge is coming from and knows exactly where Scrooge is heading. Now, <clears throat> sorry. Now this scene here, a ghost coming to persuade a living person to change their ways to avoid damnation is not really entirely unique. In fact, Jesus tells a story that is somewhat similar to this. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Now here in this section, Jesus is telling a series of parables to the disciples. And one parable is of special interest to us today. So I'm going to start reading in verse 19. So this is Luke 16, starting in verse 19. Now there was a certain rich man who clothed himself in purple and the finest linens, and who feasted luxuriously every day. At his gate, there lay a certain poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores. Now, Lazarus longed to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table, but instead, the dogs would come and lick his sores. 
the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. While being tormented in the place of the dead, he, being the rich man, looked up and saw Abraham in the distance, with Lazarus at his side. He shouted, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and to cool my tongue, because I am suffering in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things, whereas Lazarus received terrible things. Now Lazarus is being comforted, and you are in great pain. Moreover, a great chasm has been fixed between you and us. Those who wish to cross over from here to you cannot. Neither can any cross from there to us. But the rich man said, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. He needs to warn them so that they do not come to this place of agony. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They must listen to them. But the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will change their hearts and live. But Abraham said, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be persuaded by someone who raises from the dead. There's a lot of really interesting things in this passage. Uh, it's pretty obvious that in life, this rich man thought really nothing of poor Lazarus. But what I find really, really fascinating is the fact that this contempt toward Lazarus seems to have continued even into death. Notice, the rich man still wants to order Lazarus around even after they're dead. The rich man wants Lazarus to come and hand feed him water. Hand feed, I don't know if it was that word, but wants him to like feed, give him water through his hand. And not only that, he then wants Lazarus to go be his little errand boy, running around sending personal messages to the rich man's family. I think this is really a key part of this story. And that is the fact that the rich man thinks that his wealth makes his life more valuable than Lazarus's, even in death. So when the rich man looks up, he sees Lazarus a great distance away. There is this huge void between the two men. The rich man sees the void between them as rooted in the status, as rooted in wealth. But I think Jesus is trying to show that in reality, the great void that is between them is the direct result of ignorance on the part of the rich man. The rich man puts everything, devoted his entire life to this kind of artificial, very human construct of class. And it's this ignorance that causes the rich man to ignore one of Jesus's most important commandments, that being love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what would happen if Lazarus had gone to the rich man's family? You know, in this case, it's 
the ri- it's too late for the rich man. He's died. Gone to Hades. There's nothing that can be done for him there. But what about his family? What message would Lazarus have brought to the rich man's family? Well, what message does Marley bring Scrooge? Look at how Marley answers one of Scrooge's questions. Scrooge probes at Marley and asks, how did you end up in such a state? To which Marley replies, business, cried the ghost, writhing his hands again. Humanity was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, benevolence, they were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop in the water, in the comprehensive ocean. That was my business. So we can see Marley is trying to make Scrooge understand that the thing that Scrooge sees as his defining characteristic, his wealth, really means nothing. Marley is trying to tear down these false separations that Scrooge has put up between himself and everyone else. This is the first step Scrooge has to take down his road to redemption. And that is, he has to realize that we are all children of God. And as such, those people that Scrooge scorns and looks down upon are actually standing shoulder to shoulder with him, all equally worthy of God's grace and God's love. And I think this is something that is important for us to think about as well. For the rich man and for Scrooge, the, the thing that they saw that was falsely separating them or putting them above everyone else was wealth. But there are many other aspects that people think of as separating themselves from other people, making themselves better than other people in their eyes. It could be things like intelligence, looks, athletic ability. Even charitable acts can create a false sense of separation, can create a false chasm between people. You know, someone who thinks they are superior to the people around them just because they give a lot of money to charity or because they volunteer at a food bank more than their neighbors do. Someone like that is standing in the exact same shoes as Ebenezer Scrooge, as the rich, the rich man from the parable, thinking they can somehow earn God's favor that through their own actions, they can make themselves better than the people around them in the eyes of God. When we know that God's grace, God's favor, and God's love, they're freely offered to everyone. You can't buy them. In a sense, trying to do that, you, you're in a way trying to control God. And that's, that's just something that's not going to happen. You can't do it. So, we, like Scrooge, we have to remember that there's absolutely nothing we can do to make us any more or any less worthy of God's love. And as such, 
we are no better or no worse than the people around us. That's Scrooge's first step on his journey toward redemption. So that's an amazing first step for us to remember as well. The idea that everyone carries the Imago Dei. Everyone around us is stamped with the image of God. So this week, I would challenge us to think about what are the things in our lives that we subconsciously think make us better than the people around us. That we subconsciously think elevate us above others. So if Marley were to appear to you this Christmas Eve, what would be the thing that he would call you out on? What would be the thing that he would say is just a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean that is our business? That is our call on this earth. Join me as we pray. Lord, we thank you for the ability we have to come to you. And we thank you that you are such a merciful God, such a loving God, that you accept us as we are. That there's nothing we can do to earn your grace, to earn your favor. Because if that's how it works, none of us would be worthy of your love or of your grace. And so we thank you that, that that's not how it is. We thank you that your love, your redemption, your mercy, your grace, your everything is freely given to us. We don't have to earn it. Nothing like that. And Lord, we just ask that as we walk through this week, Lord, that we would remember that. That we would remember that no matter what we do, we are not made any greater in your eyes, nor any less in your eyes. We are still your children. We are still your daughters and your sons, Lord. And Lord, just ask that you go with us throughout this week. Bless us and stand by us. In your precious name we pray. Amen.